Father, we come before you today because you are the Lord of the universe, the master of our lives, our Father, the one who loves us more deeply than we can possibly even understand. And how all these things fit together is very, very difficult for our finite minds to grasp. But Father, on the basis of faith, we accept these truths. We believe in your word, and we ask that your word will be our teacher this morning. And that as James exhorts us, and we so often remind ourselves that we are to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And so as we study the word today, may it not be uh, with some kind of clinical viewpoint, but with the desire to apply it in our daily walk, to be obedient to the truth that you have spoken to us. Lord, I ask you to be present here this morning, to speak to our hearts according to our needs. For those of our uh, fellowship here who are away this morning, and there are many of them, we ask you to be with them and to bless them and touch them and keep them safe in their, their travels. Lord, I ask that throughout our complex this morning, you will, you will be in every class and that you will bless the service as it goes on concurrently. And we'll thank you for what you will do in Christ's name. Amen. I would like for us to turn to the book of Numbers, to the 18th chapter. I'd like to read verses 1 through 7 to begin with. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary. You and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. But bring with you also your brothers, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you, while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. And they shall thus attend to your obligation and the obligation of, the tent, of all the tent. But they shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary and the altar, lest both they and you die. They shall be joined with you and attend to the obligations of the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent. But an outsider may not come near you. So you shall attend to the obligations of the sanctuary and the obligations of the altar, that there may no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord, to perform the service for the tent of meeting. But you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and, the, and inside the veil. And you are to perform service. I am giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. One of the things that we discover as, as you study through the Old Testament is that God is very serious about what it means to worship, what it means to honor God, what it means to know God. And I, I think that's a message that really needs to come through in our modern day because, as you may know, there is a struggle that's developed amongst uh, many of the churches in America having to do with style of worship. And, and this is actually split churches. And this is not God's plan. God's plan is that we know what it means to worship Him. And, and I think what it means to worship Him is far more serious uh, than some people take into account. And unfortunately, there has become a rather flippant uh, attitude in many places as to what it means to worship God. 
And when we quibble over how you express that worship, I, I think we are really wide of the mark. As you read through the Old Testament, you get a real sense, and the New, of course, too, a sense of what it means to worship God. What is involved? And it's a whole lot more than singing a chorus with your hands raised. Now, that can be an outward expression, and that's fine. But it's much, much, much more than that. It involves every aspect of your life, from the, morning, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, involving everything we do all day. It's all involved in worship of the God who has made us and the God who has saved us. Now, we quickly move through the book of Leviticus, as you may remember, and we touched on certain aspects of it. And as in the case of much of Leviticus, these two chapters, 18 and 19 of the book of Numbers, um, help us to understand God's progressive revelation as to what constitutes true worship. His progressive revelation as to what constitutes true worship. God, as, as we have emphasized before, God did not dump all truth on us all at once. You know, wham, this is what I want you to know. God progressively revealed truth to his people down through the centuries, and we have the record of that revelation here in, in the scripture. And as you study from Genesis and move through, the, through to the end of the book of Revelation, the enlightenment is increased, and you can just see it in Israel. Uh, you can see how Abraham came to this point of understanding, and Moses came to this point of understanding, and of course then Jesus became the full revelation. And, and we have the account of the new covenant which ends with a book called Revelation, which uh, goes then even beyond into the future. Understanding the role of the priests, as we read about them here in Numbers, as mediators between God and Israel, is important for us to understand, as it was for Israel, of course they didn't know this yet because uh, the Messiah hadn't come yet, but for us to know the importance of the role that Jesus Christ played. I, I don't think that without an understanding of the Old Testament, we can really know what Messiah means. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Well, if you don't know the Old Testament, it's just, duh, I don't know. Uh, and that's why the, that's so important as background for understanding the revelation of the New Testament. Jesus became our mediator and Jesus became our high priest. So what's a high priest? Unless you come from Orthodox tradition or Catholic tradition, the whole concept of the priesthood is, is kind of lost on many of us evangelicals um, because we don't view our pastor as a priest in, the, in that sense. But, but Jesus came to fulfill the position of the high priest and the high priest among, in Israel was a highly exalted position. I'm not saying that Aaron was more important than other Israelites, but his responsibility was so much greater than that of the other Israelites. The priesthood, the tabernacle ritual, and the animal sacrifices were all established to instruct Israel and through Israel to instruct us as to our need for the Messiah. How can we even know we need a Messiah? Unless we understand what the tabernacle is about, what the atonement is about, what, what the sacrifices were about, all these things, if we don't really understand them, we, we don't understand what, what it means for Jesus to be our high priest, to be the atoning sacrifice for us. 
you probably well know this. You start talking about the atonement and some of these things to your common co-workers and they think you're from the moon. What are you talking about? They have no clue. They have no framework for understanding uh, the basic teachings of Scripture. And, and that's why, you know, you almost have to start the beginning and say, in the beginning was God, you know, and try to, to take people through to understand how it is that they have come to need a Savior, how they have come to need a high priest. When Messiah came, he became our high priest. And as is so powerfully portrayed in the book of Revelation, Jesus became a high priest, but at the same time, he was the sacrificial lamb. Now, never was this true of the Aaronic priesthood. Never was the priest both the priest and then also the sacrifice. But Jesus became both. And, and that's, you know, something that only God could, could understand and could bring into existence. When this happened, of course, this did away with the need for the tabernacle and the need for the animal sacrifices. Because Jesus became our high priest and Jesus became our sacrifice. So the blood of bulls and goats was no longer needed and the ritual of the tabernacle and the high priesthood was no longer needed. But they served as the schoolmaster, Paul tells us, the tutor that, we, that the Israelites might understand who Messiah was and their need for him. Because of the work which Jesus, which Jesus did, we do not need to be terrified about coming before God. You remember, I don't know if you remember this far back, but before we went away, uh, in the 17th chapter of Numbers, after God had destroyed Korah and the Levites who dared to burn incense before God, and if fire had come forth and, and fried them all, and, and then uh, the rods of all the leaders had been put in the tabernacle and Aaron's rod budded, the, the leaders of Israel said to Moses, we perish. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. I mean, they had become terrorized. We do not need to be terrorized. God has not given us a spirit of terror. We are encouraged, in fact, by Scripture to come before God in faith. And I'd like to just remind us of that well-known passage in Hebrews which so well fits here, I think, in Hebrews chapter 4, which is such an encouraging passage relative to this, and it's couched directly within the framework of the priesthood. In Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore, because this is true, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Why? Can we draw near with confidence? Because Jesus is our high priest and he understands our weaknesses. He understands everything about us. And he therefore in love accepts us into his presence. 
For what reason, though? That we may recite, receive mercy and grace to help. That's why. And I think it's really important for us to understand that that word confidence there does not imply that we can come before God with nonchalance. Oh, I can just go before God any old time I want and He's going to accept me and God, you're lucky to have me. Hardly. Nor does it mean we can go before God in arrogance. I'm such a great Christian, I can waltz in before the Lord. Hardly. Because as we have read in uh, Proverbs, it has not changed. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. I mean, we need to stand in awe of who He is. He's an awesome being. He is the awesome being. And that doesn't mean we're terrorized, but we have a holy fear of who He is. And I think we've lost a lot of that in our, in our modern churches. We just kind of waltz in and go through the routine and waltz out as if it were a club meeting. And not realize that if we come with, with true hearts before the God, we stand in presence of the almighty creator of the universe. The first passage that we read here in the 18th uh, chapter of Numbers helps us to understand the serious and the critical role of the Aaronic priesthood. It was not incidental. It was crucial. It was key. It was vital. We cannot overemphasize the role of the Aaronic priesthood. Without it, Israel could not have survived. There was great honor and there was great blessing in being a priest in Israel. But there was awesome responsibility that went along with it. And, and that's what we read about in this 18th chapter. You know, you read down through there and it says, bear the guilt in connection and the guilt in connection and all this stuff. You think, whoa, you know. <laughs> it wasn't like just, I, re I was re remember reading when I was studying one aspect of American church history where this, this kid was 16 years old, you know, and he'd come to know the Lord and he had a bit of a gift for gab, so they ordained him to be a pastor and go out and preach. Well, you know, maybe that was God's call. I, I don't know. But... You know, there, there is great responsibility to leading the flock. <laughs> and the flock needs to be led by someone who is wise in the Lord and submissive to God and, and understanding of the word. Because, you know, it tells us very often in, in Jeremiah and Isaiah that woe to the shepherd who leads the flock astray. <laughs> That's a very, very serious thing. And, and so the responsibility of the priest was immense. And because they had to carry the spiritual burden of their people before God, of the whole community. They carried that before God. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves first and then for all Israel, daily. It was a great responsibility. And therefore, they were to see that they did everything according to the exact command of God. They couldn't just say, well, today I don't feel like sacrificing the lamb that way. I think I'll do it this way. And... Uh, you know, I, mean, I don't want to give all the grain this time. I don't want to pour out the wine offering. I, I just, you know, it's, it's a laid-back day for me. No. Everything was to be done exactly as God commanded. Exactly as God commanded. And they were to see that no one who was not a priest ever attempted a priestly function. Because to do so would result in the death of both the priest who allowed it and the person who attempted it. I mean, that's a serious matter, you know. And, and there are people, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to them, who feel that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the, New, of the New Testament are two different gods. 
know? And that just isn't true. I mean, God is no different from, from when he fried Sodom and Gomorrah as he is today. He didn't fry Sodom and Gomorrah because he was psychotic and, and neurotic about these people doing their thing. He is a God of justice and of judgment, as well as of love and mercy. And balancing that is understanding who God is. And as I said, we have a tendency today to kind of lean towards the mercy and, uh, and love side of God and kind of forget the judgment and justice side of God. And uh, that, that's dangerous. And I think it leads to a flippant worship in, in many instances. And a non-serious approach to what it is to stand in the presence of the living God. I, I think for us who are true believers, as we mature in Christ, it's our responsibility to be an example to others of what it is to really worship God and, and to display a holy, wholesome fear of, of Him. One, one of the, on our little trip, we stopped, we, we were in Colorado Springs uh, just a few days ago. We visited, by the way, national headquarters and we went through the whole building and had an escorted tour, and the president wasn't there, so we didn't get to meet him. But, uh, and we went through Focus on the Family, and they have a fabulous complex there. If you ever get to Colorado Springs, be sure you visit those two places. And Glen Erie is there, you know, the Navigators, as well as the headquarters of 80 other major organizations. Focus on the Family complex is just a fabulous thing, and it's debt-free. They were telling us that Colorado Springs gave them $4 million to move there. Well, that, of course, only paid for the ground and a few things, but they really wanted them there. And as a product of that, um, they've, got a, they've got a wonderful work going on there. And, you know, one of the things that we were really impressed by there is not really aside from the topic here. The lady who led us in the tour, she said that Dr. Dobson has repeated to us recently over and over again. He says, what I want more from all of you who work here, there are 1,300 people who work for Focus on the Family, is personal holiness, personal righteousness. This is what I want to see in all of your lives and in my life. That's got to be first. If that's there, then the ministry will be carried on by the strength of God. This, this lady was very sincere. It was, very, it was a great blessing. But the, the, the work that God is doing, we um, went to the Front Range Alliance Church, which is uh, one of four Alliance churches that are functioning in Colorado Springs. And, and it was obviously God was blessing there, and it's a, it's a growing congregation. And, you know, God, God is moving in a powerful way. And where he is honored, the work is going forward, and the enemy is not stopping it. I think the, the works that are in trouble are the works where God is not really being honored and they're trying to do it in the flesh. And they're not really understanding who God is. Now that's one of the most important factors that we derive out of study of the Word of God. It's not just more information, you know, that we know that Hezekiah lived 15 more years and that he begat Manasseh and Manasseh was a jerk until at the end of his life you finally recognize God. And those are all good uh, points of information. They help us to illustrate what God does in lives. But what we learn is the character of God and who He is and what He wants us to be as a result. It's a wondrous thing. And, and, and as you see these works grow, and, and prosper and really see lives change. You know, the anointing of the Lord is upon it because they understand who He is. And others, unfortunately, do not. The enemy is always in there.
trying to say, ah, you know, God won't do this, God won't do that. You know, God's not really this way, God's that way, and God really wants to rip you off. But we can shut the mouth of Satan if we understand who God is. The priests were to carry the spiritual burdens of the whole community. And one of the things that really impressed us at, at Colorado Springs, the national headquarters, was that every day they gathered together to pray for the work of the Alliance worldwide. And they spend, uh, I think it was on Friday, was it? It's Friday, they spend a significant amount of time in prayer. And, and they have a, a list of, of the works that they're praying for, the missionaries and, and the homework and all. And, I mean, it's a serious <coughs> matter. It's really important. And uh, God, God is at work. In, in the first verse of chapter 18 here, two things are made clear. The, first of all, <coughs> the priest was responsible for carrying out the tabernacle ritual and the functions of the priesthood exactly. If not, the scripture says he bore the guilt failure. Secondly, we're told the priest was responsible to make sure that no unauthorized person carried out any priestly functions. If he did not, he bore that guilt and so did the person who attempted to do it. And of course, this was underscored by what happened to Korah and the, and the 250. I mean, the fire of the Lord came forth and they all died as they stood, attempting to usurp Aaron's position. Ron Allen, commentator, says this, the priests who have their work in the precincts of his dwelling must realize that they are there at the leave of God, but they cannot forget where they are, nor be casual in what they are to do. To act foolishly, brazenly, carelessly in the holy places is to invite disaster. Their priestly ministry puts them in the role of awesome responsibility. Now, you and I do not stand in that same situation today. I mean, we don't have to worry about whether, you know, I walk out the door and say the wrong thing or look the wrong way, God's going to fry me. But I think we've gone almost too far the other way. You know, we, we almost have this buddy-buddy thing with God. You know, we just kind of throw our arm around his shoulder and say, how are things today, God? You know, God is our friend. He's our father. Jesus is our elder brother, but he's God. <laughs> and we are so far from God in terms of who we are that there is no comparison. And I think it's important for us to always keep that, that sense of awe in our relationship with him. In the second through the fourth verses that we read in this 18th chapter, God reminded the priests that he had given them the entire tribe of Levi to assist them in the work of the tabernacle. However, and this was very important, they were each one to remember his place. Only Aaron and his sons could do the priestly work. The Levites, although they were of the same tribe, could do the other work, but they could not do the priestly work. Only Aaron and his sons could do that. If any Levite attempted, non-priestly Levite, attempted to usurp the role of priest inside the tabernacle, that is, going in through that first veil, or attempting to offer an offering on the bronze altar, they, both he and the priest who allowed him to do that, the scripture says, will die. No, I mean, that seems pretty serious to me. You know, I think God means what he says. I, I think it's possible that even today there are people who are Christians who die 
because they have been flippant in their attitude towards God. You know, I, the warning, I think, that's given in Corinthians about the, uh, the Eucharist, the communion, I think is more serious than we sometimes take it. You know, God says that those who, who take this without having gotten, you know, confessed their sins to God and to others and, and who take it with a flippant attitude, I mean, you know, some are sick and some even have died. And sometimes we don't recognize that because we just don't have the same... Uh, we've gotten so far from the Israelite view of things that it's almost like two different universes. And it's not really that way. The fifth verse of this chapter helps us to understand the atoning work of the priesthood. Through his mercy, and this you have to always underscore God's mercy here. Through his mercy, God provided a way by which atonement could be made for the sins of Israel. As the priests faithfully carried out their role, the blood of the sacrifices would cover the sin of the people and God's judgment would be diverted. This was all done, as we have talked about many times before, <laughs> symbolic of what, of course, Christ would do permanently. But it was important. And the sixth and seventh verses that we read here reiterate the first verses in this particular passage. Be sure. And when God reiterates something, it's kind of like underline, underline, you know, quotation marks, bold print. I'm telling you something here, he says, that I want you to know and, and do. Don't come before me with nonchalance. Don't come before me as if, hey, it's okay, God will take me any old way I am. A lot of things could be said about this, and some of it might be meddling, and so I won't say it. But I think we can become so dressed down in our fellowship that we begin to lose the sense of who God is. I don't mean just in clothing. I mean in our whole attitude and demeanor and the way we do everything. Well, verse 8 of chapter 18. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron. Now behold, I myself have given you charge of my offerings, even, as, even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. This shall be yours from the most holy gifts, reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering, and every sin offering, and every guilt offering, which they shall render to me, shall be most holy for you and for your sons. As the most holy gifts, you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. This also is yours, the offerings of their gift, even all the wave offerings of the sons of Israel. I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. All the best of the fresh oil and the best of the fresh wine and of the grain, the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord, I have given them to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And as to their redemption price, from a month old you shall redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. 
But the firstborn of an ox, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar, and shall offer up their fat in the smoke as an offering by fire for a, smoothing aroma, a soothing aroma to the Lord. And their meat shall be yours. It shall be yours like the breast of the wave offering and like the right thigh. All of the offerings of the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and to your sons and to your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and to your descendants with you. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. This is a very practical passage. It deals with the remuneration of the priesthood. 20th verse is the key verse to this passage. The priesthood would not receive an inheritance in the land of Israel. When they got to Israel, and this is, of course, jumping ahead of the story, but you know it. When, when they conquered the land, as they do in the book of Joshua, they parcel out the land. And each tribe gets a portion of the land. And so 12 tribes receive 12 portions. Actually, two of them, two and a half of them, are across in what is today Jordan, the country of Jordan. But the Levites received no allotted one-twelfth or one-thirteenth of the country. Of, of the land that would be conquered. Now, the tribe of Levi would receive 48 cities. Now, I use the word city because that's the word the Scripture uses. But we have to think city in a different sense. Don't think city like Chicago or San Francisco. Think city like I go or oh no, you know. <laughs> These were just little villages that they got scattered through the land, 48 of them that the Levites would live in. And there were to be some virtually in every tribal portion. Aaron and his family would not receive anything except the Lord. I, the Lord, am your portion. <laughs> what greater provision could you have, really? Aaron and his family throughout the subsequent generations were to live off a portion of the offerings that were to be made. And, and this verse has powerful imagery in it. This, this 20th verse, let me read it again. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance amongst the sons of Israel. Each tribe... Reuben and Judah and Simeon and Issachar and Dan and all the way down the line. Each tribe was to receive a portion of Canaan. And there on that portion of land, they were to earn their living. They were to provide for their need from generation to generation. It would have been in perpetuity had they been obedient people. But for Aaron and his family, God would be their portion. They wouldn't have land. Now, of course, for Americans, we think real estate. What's more important than real estate? It's real. <laughs> you know, I've got to have a piece of land. Give me land, lots of land, lots of however it all goes. And, and we all, you know, what's the dream of that house with a white picket fence and a nice yard around it and the dog and the cat and whatever else? This is the American dream. But, of course, even for many Americans, it's not a reality, especially not when it's an acre of land. 
you know, you go to some countries, as many of you have been, and um, even where the Heinz are going back uh, tomorrow, I guess, aren't they? I mean, it's very common for several families to live in one rather large apartment. No privacy. You know, this whole concept of privacy, which is so important for us, is, is something that, that hardly exists in much of the world outside of America, some of Europe. God would be the Aaronic portion. That doesn't mean that Aaron and his family wouldn't have some place to live, but that wouldn't be their portion. God would provide for their <laughs> needs. You and I, like Aaron, have no portion. I'm not saying you don't own a house and a piece of property, but you don't have a portion in the sense that God gave to each tribe a portion. He described it out in the ground, said, this belongs to the tribe of Zebulon. It was theirs forever, you know, had they walked in obedience, as long as the world lasted anyway. But God has not given to you and to me a physical place in this land in that kind of a promise. Like the promise to Aaron, God has promised to be our portion. He is our portion. And, and you and I derive our, our sustenance, our life, and our everything from him every day. And if he gives us a house, that's fine. If he gives us a car, that's fine. If he gives us three me meals a day, that's fine. That's all part of his provision. But we have no guarantees, do we? We have often read in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And that's a promise we hang on to. That's a promise that I think is very important. I want to say more about that promise and its context a little bit later, if not today, next Sunday, uh, because that's important too. Uh, we have to understand almost all of God's promises have conditions attached to them. And, and we need to understand those. But God is our portion, and God is the one who supplies our needs every day, physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever they may be. Now, the means by which God would supply the need of the priesthood is explained in this passage. God would use the offerings of this people. Israel was to give offerings to God. Those offerings would be used to meet the need of the priesthood. In the 8th through the 10th verses here, we read and we discovered that the priests were to eat a portion of the offerings. They were to eat some of the grain offerings, some of the wine offerings, some of the oil offering, and some of the meat offering. That's what they were to live on. A part of it was theirs. It wasn't all to be fried on the altar. The bulk of it, in fact, was given to the priest. And we discover in the 11th through the 13th verses that the families of the priests were to be provided for in this way. Not just the priest, but his wife and his children, all were to be provided for from these offerings that Israel was to make. A portion of the grain offering, a portion of the sin offering, a portion of the guilt offering was not to be burned up, but was to be taken by the priests to feed himself and his family. The wave offering, which is the offering that they waved before the Lord and didn't burn at all, was given to them. It was, that was its purpose. And the first fruit offering was given to them to provide for their needs. And this was a wonderful provision because what, what of the grain and the wine and the oil did they receive? The first fruit, the best. 
That was what they received. There's a principle in this passage, which I think is very important. It was not only important then, but just as important, as important today. And that is the principle of the first and the best belongs to God. The first and the best belongs to God. God is not happy with leftovers. I was always impressed when I studied the 13th chapter of the book of Acts that when God decided that he needed missionaries or he wanted to send missionaries to the Gentiles, did he look around and try to find somebody who couldn't quite cut it in any other area of work? You know, somebody who just couldn't finish school, somebody who just couldn't seem to hold a uh, a job, so God said, okay, I'll take him, make him a missionary. Oh, God called Paul and Barnabas. (laughs) I mean, they were out on the cutting edge. They were the best the church had to offer. And God called them. God wants our best and God wants the best because none of our best and none of the, the best is good enough for him anyway. But it's what should be given to God. His portion should come first and his portion should come in full measure. And that is, of course, not for God's sake. It's not because God is up there saying, what am I going to do now if I don't get a full offering here? (laughs) That's so silly. God of the universe doesn't need a thing we can give him. It's for our sakes. So we comprehend who he is. I think if we give God second best or we cheat him and don't give him what what is due to him, it is an expression of the fact that we do not love him. And we do not honor him as God, and we do not consider him our Lord and Master. You know, this whole argument that goes on in some churches, well, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not yet my Lord. What kind of nonsense is that? Scripture says Jesus is Lord, period. If you're not on the bandwagon, that's your problem. It's not his problem. And, you know, if Jesus is our Savior, he is our Lord. You know, he's not coming along just you know, this whole fire insurance concept, you know, just hop on the wagon so you don't go to hell, but live how you feel like it in the meantime. That's a bunch of baloney. He didn't come to be Savior without being Lord. He's Master, He's King, He's Lord of the universe, and He is our Lord. But we demonstrate that we don't consider Him to be that when we don't give Him our best and we don't give Him what's due to Him. I'm not just talking about one thing. I'm talking about all areas of our life, our attitude, our energy, our desires, everything, not just our money. That's an important part, too. It was uh, Vernon McGee who always came down. He was such a practical person. I'd love to listen to him preach. Of course, you still can. (laughs) The wonders of tape and (laughs) so forth, the video that you can still watch somebody long dead or listen to him, but uh, he always, you know, used to say that uh, if, if you didn't give God what was due to him, uh, you were just uh, plain a piker. You, know, you were just stingy. You were just uh, not one who truly loved or served the master. And I, I think that's one of the big problems that many face in the church today, is they have this idea that when the offering plate comes by, you can kind of toss a $5 bill in, and God is up there going, no, oh, goody, goody, goody. I got $5 from this guy. No. You know, it's all God's. Everything you own, everything I own is his. And uh, we are just giving back a portion in response to our obligation to help provide for the work that he is endeavoring to do.
to in order to enable this church to prosper and do everything that it needs to do to, to enable the Alliance to reach out and, and to send more missionaries uh, around the world. And, uh, you know, it's important. And if we don't do it, it's ourselves we're hurting because we're just proving that we really are Scrooge. If we do not give the best and the, and, and, and the full amount of what we uh, owe to the Lord, then we are... Uh, demonstrating that our love and worship for him is inadequate. And what it means is, and I love this passage, many people interpret it in various ways, but in the third book, chapter of Revelation, tells us about the church at, you know where, Laodicea. That church where the water supply that came into the city was lukewarm and yucky. And John uses that under the inspiration of the Spirit to, to be the illustration of what can happen spiritually. In the 14th verse of the third chapter of Revelation, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And by the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses will come along and say, Look, see right there it says, the beginning. Jesus was the first thing God made. That's not what the, uh, the Greek says there. The word is arche. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Dr. Walmark would know. But it means source. The source of the creation of God. The fountainhead says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. And notice this next verse. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Reminds me of the story of the emperor's garment, or what was that? The emperor's new clothes, yeah. <laughs> you think you're walking around in all this lovely stuff, and you're standing there stark naked. You know, it's a scary thought. But that's what God is saying. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. He's not just talking about physical nakedness here, of course. He's talking about spiritual nakedness. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice that parallelism, though, in verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. When, when you think of that, it just makes all this pikerliness that we have a tendency to gravitate towards seem so stupid. You know, I'm going to, this month, you know, my bills are such, I, I'm just going to have to, to forgo my tithe. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of an attitude displays that we have no understanding of what Scripture is talking about. Who is this? What's more important, Bank of America or the God of the universe? You know? I'm not saying we shouldn't pay our bills. We shouldn't have them if we can't pay them. 
But, uh, you know, the, the whole thing, I think, is, is true of so much of the church today. It's a Laodicean church. You know, I'm not a firm believer in this idea that all the seven churches stand for different periods of church history. I think that you'll find all seven of those churches in every time in church history. And maybe we're a little bit more Laodicean today than uh, other times. But we have a lot of Philadelphians today, too. And, and so I, I think that it's important to remember who we are and whose we are and that to Him belongs the glory and the honor and the dominion and the power and everything we can give Him in terms of our worship, which is the thing He wants above all else. An expression of that worship, of course, is giving of what we have to His honor and glory and to His service. And that's what He demands of the priesthood, that's what He demands of the Levite, and that's what He demands of all Israel, and that's an example to us. Well, next week we'll um, look a little further at what God said specifically relative to the Levites.